And I want to tell you something that I believe about preaching. Can I tell you a secret? Yeah, here's what I believe. It's not a spectator sport. Amen. Amen. I, I wish we had church in the round where everybody was in a circle and literally looked at each other because the fact that we are facing the front almost suggests that all the good stuff is happening up front and everybody else is just kind of watching it happen. Well, au contraire. Church is about all of us. Amen. Church is not a spectator sport. This is where everybody's got to lace up their shoes and get in the game. Yes, I'm talking to you in the balcony. Everybody is supposed to come do church. Amen. That's why the psalmist said, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let's exalt God's name together. Amen. So I promise you, I'll give you my A game. But if I give you my A game, I would love you if you would also give me your Oh, oh, oh. Your A game. Amen. Because where we bring our A game, I'm here to tell you we leave transformed. It's not just about coming and paying attention. It's about coming and being engaged by the true and living God. And my prayer this morning is that we would experience a true and living God. When we say that we are the people who believe in the resurrection, that means God is not dead. God is alive on your pew right now in your seat. God is present. And so, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, I declare that you are are here and we honor your presence. We thank you that you are the risen Christ. And we thank you, Lord God, that you speak to your people in the here and now. So give us this day our daily bread. We shall not live by the human food alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak, Lord, because your servants, we, your children, are listening you have our full, undivided attention because you have the words of life and we need to hear from you. So we declare it now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you hear the word again afresh from Esther chapter 4 as I prepare to preach this morning from the subject, Who? Me? Here's the word as it's heard in the New Revised Standard Version beginning at verse 12. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity. Perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. After that, I'm sorry, I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This, my brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
I want to ask a question this morning, simply this, who, me? And as I think about the book of Esther, that question resonates for me because it really does raise for me a question of where leaders come from. Are leaders born or are leaders made? My guess is that many of us have heard people say things like, that person's a born leader. Maybe you've heard it about yourself. Maybe there's a kid in your family and you just see over her leadership potential everywhere. And you know that if the kindergarten teacher calls you, she wasn't being a follower. She was leading the whole revolution. And you just see it. She's two and you can already see it. The problem with that is that there's some people who would say, I don't have that kind of outgoing, uh, confident demeanor. I'm not talkative. I'm not necessarily an extrovert. I'm more internal. I'm much more reflective. And so maybe I'm not a leader. Do you see the problem becomes this notion of who's qualified to lead and who sees themselves as a leader? And so the debate rages on. Some people will say that they see the external characteristics that make them a leader and they're just born a leader. And so that's their nature to lead. Other people would say, well, I wasn't really born that way, but I've taken leadership development classes and I've gone to seminars and I've nurtured my leadership. And so the debate is, is it nature or is it nurture? And my guess is that if we really took the time to talk about it, we'd say that it's probably all of that. But in my pursuit to answer that question, I read a book by a man named John Maxwell, and he wrote a book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And in that book, he said that at Law 19, there's all kinds of things, but the 19th law stopped me in my tracks. And he said, law 19 is the law of timing. He says, timing has something to do with whether or not a person steps into leadership or not. He said that that is what happened with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That this notion that you're not really ready to do it, but the time in which you demand makes you do it, is what happened to King. He wasn't trying to be a civil rights leader as we know him today. In fact, he was a pastor he was a philosopher. He was a father of a newborn baby daughter with his wife, Coretta. And he just wanted to preach the gospel, write books, and be a normal guy in the pulpit. But because of a movement that was happening in his time that did not have a name but was beginning to be this burgeoning conscience of our country, the media began taking notice of it. And they needed a spokesperson. They came to a meeting where they were having in a church and they said that somebody had to go out and speak to the media. And everybody began to debate about who that person should be. And eventually they said, Martin, you're the guy. You should be the one who goes and talks to, to, to the press. And I think in my sanctified imagination, he must have said to himself, who? Me? I got to get back to my church. I've got a little baby girl at home. I'm a pastor. But he did go out and he did speak to the media. And the rest is history. He became the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights leader who was a part of helping to change history as we know it. Hadassah was not looking for leadership. That's her real name. She's a young girl, a teenager, who's had a really hard life. Both of her parents have passed away. She's orphaned, and she's living in a single-parent family. Now, for most of us, her pedigree would not say leader. She'd not be the person we'd see on the front of People magazine. She's just a normal girl living in a small town with her uncle, and she's got a lot of pain, probably, that she's had to go through to even be normal at this stage of her life. 
I can't go into it, but my goodness, can you imagine what it must feel like to lose both of your parents at such an early age? How that must leave all kinds of questions between you and God about why you and how come they both had to die and why is her uncle raising her? Where are her aunts? We don't know the answer to all those questions, but what it suggests is that no matter what we've been through, it does this not disqualify us from being used by God. Amen. Amen. That no matter who we are, no matter what we've gone through, God can still use us. No matter if there's been drama in our lives and we've been through some things and we're a little bit banged up from the journey of life, God can still reach us and use us. Even if we think we're not leadership material, God can say, yes, I can use even you. And so Hadassah's minding her own business and she's not a political person. She's not paying attention to what's going on in the big city of Susa. She's just trying to have a normal life. She's a pretty young thing and so maybe she notices that a guy likes her. Maybe she likes him and at this point if she just got married she'd be happy. But I'm telling you, there are things that can happen in the legislative, gubernatorial, gubernatorial and, 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 and legislative judicial centers of our day that make us have to pay t attention whether we want to or not. That's what's happening in Susa. There's a king, his name is Xerxes. He's throwing a party unlike any that's ever been held. He wants to display his might and his majesty. He's invited all of the leaders from all of the provinces throughout his empire to come and no expenses have been spared. Time won't allow me to tell you of this party, but suffice it to say that what has gone on here has been mind boggling. It has been a spectacle that cannot be rivaled by anyone in the whole of his kingdom. They have and odd at so much of his splendor. They don't even know what to do with the wealth of this king. And it has been poured out in such a lavish way that people have eaten too much. They have drank more than they could even hold. And now their senses are no doubt dull. And the king has run out of things to impress them with. And so he sends for his wife Vashti. His political advisors help him to think of how he could really, really wow the crowd. And so they send for the queen that people are not supposed to look at and they tell her to come he summons her to his party she's in another part of the palace with women and when the eunuch goes to tell Vashti that she should come and come to this party and present herself she refuses to come in my mind she says to herself who me he wants me to do what People don't gawk at me. Men don't ogle, ogle me with their eyes. They lower their gaze when I walk in a room. I will not demean myself. So she refuses to come. The word gets back to the king and he's no longer now being seen as all powerful because he can't control his own wife. If I had time, I'd stop myself a vast time movement, but <laughs> I got to let you go. So. Those same political advisors who advise him to go get Vashti know that he has to do something to show his strength again. And they say to him, banish her. He does so. When the party is all over and all the guests have gone, they have eaten everything and drank everything and they've taken everything, he's left alone and he's in a depression. 
and he begins to wonder how he can change this situation. That's when this decision is made in this gubernatorial place where decisions are made to have a beauty contest. And that beauty contest is now going to intersect with Hadassah. When the men who have sent been sent now to go round up all the beautiful young women and bring them back to Susa to be a part of the king's harem goes out, they get to her village and they see her face and they take her from her father. And in a last ditch effort to try to keep her from being taken and harmed in any way, he gives her his fatherly last word. And he says, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Now, my brothers and sisters, there's a lot of things you can say as the last word to your daughter or your son before they go away from you, to the army, to college, to missions. But usually you don't say to them, don't let them know who you really are. Don't tell them what your ethnicity really is. Blend in, assimilate. But I think Mordecai knows something about his day that's very similar to ours. That sometimes people are not judged by their qualifications. Sometimes people are not judged by the content of their character. Sometimes they are judged by the color of their skin, the sound of their last name. And so she assimilates. She gets to the palace and she pretends that she's Persian. She changes her name from Hadassah to Esther and things aren't going as bad as she thought. She wins this contest. And so she's kicking it in the palace. <laughs> Until one day she looks out the door and she sees Mordecai who is now weeping in sackcloth and ashes and he is beside himself with grief. She hurries and sends clothes out to him to try to make him clean himself up because she can't imagine what has gotten him in such a horrible state. And he does something really powerful. And let me say what it is. He sends the clothes back because he's saying to her, I will not keep silent and I will not stop speaking out and I will not shut up. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, I will come right outside of the church door and I will speak out loud. I mean the palace and I will speak out loud and I will say to you, Esther, you got to pay attention. You've been in the palace too long. You have become isolated and insulated and ignorant. You don't know what's happening to the people anymore. You don't understand that there's a man named Haman who is angry with me but instead of being angry with just me he has had now this whole plot to kill everybody who looks like me one man me would not stand up when he would come into a room I would not bow down but instead Instead of me being punished for it, he's punishing everybody who looks like me. It's called racial profiling, where one person does something and now all Muslims are suspicious. One person does something and all people from Mexico. One person is doing something and all black people are all people. And we said to, to Mordecai says, I'm going to cry about it. I'm going to say something about it. And you should say something about it too. And Esther said, who, me? I'll get in trouble. I just came to church, really, for the worship service. I did not come to be challenged to come out of the palace. <laughs> really, I didn't. I came here, it's supposed to last an hour. I do my hour, I'm out. Really, Mordecai? 
And Mordecai says, I'm not going to stop crying and you should start crying because some things ought to make us weep. It ought to make us weep when we find out that a whole generation of college young children might be poisoned by water in a place that they had no idea that drinking water from their tap actually may be causing them brain damage and will see it for the rest of their lives. That should make us weep. It should make us weep when we hear that people are not uh, having fair uh, housing practices here in Seattle and that somehow they can't find a place to live because they just don't have the right level of income to buy any place to live. That should make us cry. And he said, I'm sending the clothes back, Esther, because I need you to get involved. And so my brothers and my sisters, I want to say to you, I think Mordecai's outside of the church house. And I think he's asking us not to keep silent. I think he's trying to say to us that maybe, just maybe, we won the beauty contest. That maybe, just maybe, we were put in the positions that we find ourselves in because we're supposed to use our influence and our access and our privilege and our positions to advocate for the cause of the kingdom of God. Maybe we're supposed to be the folks who can speak truth to power. And yes, it's very scary, Esther. And that's why Mordecai says to us, if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Man, I wish I had time to tell you how powerful that is. Because he's really saying it's not whether or not you're scared to do it. It's not whether or not you feel like doing it. Do you understand that this could be your moment of destiny? I want to close with this because I must. There is a quote that I heard years ago by Winston Churchill, and it says this, there comes a time in every person's life when they are given the unique opportunity to discover the purpose for which they were born. It is their moment of destiny. And if they seize it, it becomes their finest hour. My brothers and my sisters, I believe that we're at our moment of destiny. And the only question now is, will we seize it? So in answer to the question, who, me? God said, yes, you. Yes, single parent, you. Yes, went through a divorce, you. Yes, church going, you. Yes, you, stay at home mom, you. Yes, you, retired, you. Yes, you, business owner, you. Yes, you, college student, you. Who, me? Yes, you.